You can turn your Bibles to the book of Esther, and uh, we're actually going to cover the whole middle section of Esther. Um, it's more than three chapters, really, we'll read today. Uh, we'll begin in Esther chapter 5. I think that's on page 412, or no, 413, uh, there in the Bibles uh, provided for you. And the, the topic, uh, the thing we're going to discuss, discuss today is something called the providence of God. And um, the providence of God. How many of you have heard of that term in that manner? Providence of God. Raise your hand. Raise your hand. Okay, great. Um, about a third of us, this is a new idea. Uh, or at least we haven't had someone like lay it out explicitly. Or you weren't paying attention just now. Uh, which is another option on the plate, I know. Uh, providence uh, is an interesting thing. And uh, the word I'll use at the very end of the sermon is this word from our text that we memorized this week, behold. The word behold is throughout the scriptures. And it means lift up your eyes and pay attention. Look up and see. Do you know the power of beholding what is true and beholding this invisible one, this God who supports and oversees, providing, protecting, managing, directing all the affairs of we, his creatures, who scurry about on the very thin crust of a small sphere, rotating a sun, rotating, according to my son this week, a black hole at the center of the galaxy. That's what he was thankful for when we went around. He was thankful for the black hole. At the, anyways, it was kind of a funny moment. <laughs> you never know what people are thankful for. And, uh, you know, I, 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 this, the, the power of thanksgiving, or maybe the better way to say it is the power of beholding with eyes of faith, God is an anchor for sanity, for your human nature. You are designed by God for him. And if you will rebuff him, if you will ignore him, if you will refuse him, you will unravel. I saw that in, in stark relief this week in two encounters. Uh, one, I went to an institution and there was a man there. I'll say he went by the name Brittany. That's not the name he chose. But he tried to act feminine and he did have a beard and he was cowering, literally cowering under a pillow on his bed. A young man, very disoriented, cowering and I tried to present to him this concept of beholding. It was a beautiful morning, actually. There was snow clinging to the branches, and I directed his attention to a God who would make such a beautiful landscape for him to behold. But he saw no reason to give God credit for snow, for his ability to think and breathe. I tried to present to him Jesus, for whom we have an anchor of salvation and hope, but he would not at least that morning listen. Of course, I've been praying ever since that seeds that had been scattered by my words, perhaps by your words, would pierce his hard heart. And then in contrast with a young man cowering beneath a pillow, and I, I wish you could have seen the vision of, of such a, a person so disoriented, so afraid of any and everything, I saw a short woman, an older woman, stride purposely on one of the coldest days so far this winter to the cemetery and bury both her son and her husband on the same day. And the level of confidence and grace and grit that this woman had in Christ was beautiful to behold. Why? Because she saw, not in life setbacks, random chance. She believed and hoped that there was a God truly there, guiding all the, or the circumstances of her life, even the very hairs on her head and the very number of days for her son and her husband and herself. It held her together. The level of sanity she had that I hope the other person, this young man, aches for is on offer to us today in the God who the Bible says is a God of providence. What is providence? It's a word that's actually never, ever used in the Bible. 
then you're asking me, but then why are you talking about it? <laughs> well, just because a word isn't used doesn't mean it isn't a concept or a principle laid out, right? Uh, that's a fallacy to think if a word is not used, then God doesn't care about certain things or isn't a certain way. The word providence is an English word. Its, its roots literally mean to see ahead, to foresee, and provide is in there. Providence, provide. It's basically spelled provide with an N-C-E. So P-R-O-V-I-D-E-N-C-E. And it's basically foreseeing with the intent or with the idea of preparing or providing for yourself and others in light of that. So providence could be put as foreseeing care. Foreseeing care. Here's a definition from uh, one of the theologians of the church, a man who is very good at being careful and clear uh, with his words. Can you bring up that? Louis Burkhoff is the theologian. He, he described or explained or maybe defined providence this way. Providence, maybe you want to use your smartphone and take a, a quick snap. Isn't it wonderful that you don't have to hurry, scurry? Remember we had to take notes with your fingers all the time? And I could, you never like, ah, I could never get there. And then finally, when I turned 40, I could just took, take pictures in lectures. Here is a quote worth your attention. Providence may be defined as that continued exercise of the divine energy whereby the creator preserves all his creatures, is operative in all that comes to pass in the world, and directs all things to their appointed end. Can you bring that quote back up? We're having more computer problems, aren't we? Well, I'll have to read it off my notes. <laughs> so what kind of activities are we referring to with providence? God's ability and his work to preserve and govern all things. Jesus talked about this in Matthew 6, 26. He said, look at the birds of the air. They not, neither sow nor reap nor gather into barns, yet your Father in heaven feeds them. And are you not of much more value than they? Jesus believed in providence. He saw, he beheld, behold, beheld beneath all the things of this earth, God's supporting hand. How far is God preserving and governing things, all things, all creatures, all things that come to pass, all things are supported and guided and arranged by God. What is his goal? What is his target? What's he about? What's he preserving, governing, directing, that kind of thing? Well, he's working out all things for his glory and for the good of his redeemed people. Jesus said that as well. Matthew 10, 29, Are not two sparrows, two birds, sold for a penny? Yet not one of them will fall to the ground apart from your father. Now, many are skeptical of providence. They think, because providence is ordinary. I guess you might say it's explainable. Or maybe, if you're a skeptic, it's explainawayable. <laughs> That's a new word, explainawayable. There's a scene uh, in this movie, Shenandoah, and I think the character's name is Andrew. I at least remember who the actor is. It's Jimmy Stewart. And uh, he's, they're gathering, the family's gathering around at this long table uh, to pray over the meal. It's not Thanksgiving, but boy, the parallels to the meals that you and I are, are, have had or will have this week are, are very similar. And the thing of it is, his wife has just died, and in that family, the wife was the one who was responsible for the, the prayers and the, you know, the religious things. Uh, this man was just a hard worker, just a farmer. He didn't know the first thing about prayer, and really, and his words reflect it. This is his prayer, which reveals the state of his heart. He prays like this, Lord, we cleared this land, we plowed it, we sowed it, we harvested it, we cooked the harvest. It wouldn't be here, we wouldn't be here eating it if we hadn't done it all ourselves. We work dog bone hard for every crumb and morsel, but we thank you just the same anyway. <laughs> Lord, for this food that we're about to eat, amen. <laughs> I mean, it's humorous, right? Like, <laughs> it was meant to be humorous, though the character in the movie didn't quite get it then in the story. And in a way, is he wrong? <laughs> no, I'm sure they work very hard. Gardening, farming, the things you do to provide for your family. I hope you work very hard. But 
That doesn't mean you should still not behold lifting up your attention and regarding and crediting the God who sustains all those things. What this man neglected to notice is that everything was under God's care. That even the ability to break up the soil where he happened to live and actually have soil that could have things grow in it, which isn't the case in every place, every uh, plot of land on this ground was an act, a work of God's providence. Even the ability, the design of seeds to, to be put in the ground under the right conditions that would explode open somehow and, and produce the very design of the thing that the seed was made from. And then it would produce fruit. That again is from God. And then that God's sustaining hand that this character, Jimmy Stewart, plays that he would be able to eat this food, cook this food, digest it, and not somehow die or rot from within is all a work of God's sustaining invisible grace. And yet, we take him for granted. I think God has got to be the most patient being in all of the universe to be so constantly disregarded and yet put up with us. He not only puts up with us, this is what God does for us. Hebrews chapter 1 verse 3. Can you bring that verse up for me? Here it is, Hebrews 1, 3, he, that is, he's talking about the Son of God, the writer of this amazing sermon, which is what Hebrews is. He, that is the Son of God, is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature, God's nature, and he, the Son of God, upholds the universe by the word of his power. After making purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. This is an amazing sentence. He upholds, it says Hebrews 1.3. He upholds, upholds the universe by the word of his power. Upholds means holds together. It means, and it's a present participle, so it's a, he is continually carrying, continually holding it all together. And what scripture invites us to see is that we are to behold the God who does all that. The God who's working in all kinds of ways and to, yes, recognize that this Thanksgiving there are many secondary factors for sure, secondary causes and supports, but beneath them all is the primary cause, our excellent and great God, whom we, if you're here today, are resolved to give glory, amen, and to at least be one of the few scurrying around this corner of our part of the planet, giving him honor and do credit for what he is and has done. We're now going to look at Esther. So that's the introduction. That's explaining the principle of providence, the doctrine of providence. And now we're going to read an amazing story that illustrates it in spades. And because we're going to read so many chapters of Esther, uh, by the way, it's on page 412, 413, but we're actually going to read it narratively, kind of more dramatically. I'm going to, I've asked a few people to come on up, and if you would do that now, those who are planning to read with me, we're going to read Esther 4, 5, I'm sorry, Esther 5, 6, and 7, and the setup is this, uh, Esther... Uh, has been raised up to take the place of the previous queen who was deposed. Her name was Vashti. And now she's in this unique position. But there's this guy, Haman, this villain, who wants Esther. She doesn't know it's going to be Esther. But Haman wants Mordecai and every last one of the Jews, God's people, to be eradicated off the planet. He wants genocide to occur. And uh, Mordecai is weeping. He's in sackcloth and ashes. He comes to Esther through, through a, a messenger and says, perhaps for just such a time as this, you have been lifted up and put in this position. And uh, it's the story about how Esther, after fasting with all the people, uh, inviting them to fast too, how she was able to courageously put her life in the hands of the king because it was illegal for her to go to the king without him bid, being, bidding him to do so. And so she really puts her life in her hands. So playing the part of Esther is V&A. All right. Go, 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 go. Wait till she does a good job. Then you can clap. All right. This is, this is Esther. Uh, the king without a crown, but he's tall enough to be a king. Pastor Jonathan. This is our villain. Doesn't he play the part well? Look at this. Everything about him looks villainy. And then, special regard for Mordecai. Okay, keep your eye on Mordecai. All right, here we go. He has the best expressions in the world. Here we go. I'm going to be the narrator, all right? And we're going to read chapters 5, 6, 7. And uh, you can read it yourself or maybe kind of clue in as we're reading it along. We won't be acting it out, but we will be reading it out. So, here's the word of God. 
read word by word as it's laid down. On the third day, Esther put on her royal robes and stood in the inner court of the king's palace in front of the king's quarters while the king was sitting on his royal throne inside the throne room opposite the entrance to the palace. And when the king saw Queen Esther standing in the court, she won favor in his sight, and he held out to Esther the golden scepter that was in his hand. Then Esther approached and touched the tip of the scepter, and the king said to her, What is it, Queen Esther? What is your request? It shall be given to you, even to the half of my kingdom. And Esther said, If it please the king, let the king and Haman come today to a feast that I have prepared for the king. Then the king said, Bring Haman quickly, so that we may do as Esther has asked. So the king and Haman came to the feast that Esther had prepared. And as they were drinking wine after the feast, the king said to Esther, What is your wish? It shall be granted you. And what is your request? Even to the half of my kingdom it shall be fulfilled. Then Esther answered, my wish and my request is, if I have found favor in the sight of the king, and if it please the king to grant my wish and fulfill my request, let the king and Haman come to the feast that I will prepare for them, and tomorrow I will do as the king has said. And Haman went out that day joyful and glad of heart. But when Haman saw Mordecai in the king's gate, that he neither rose nor trembled before him, he was filled with wrath against Mordecai. Nevertheless, Haman restrained himself and went home, and he sent and brought his friends and his wife Zeresh. And Haman recounted to them the splendor of his riches, the number of his sons, and all the promotions with which the king had honored him, and how he had advanced him above the officials and the servants of the king. Then Haman said, Even Queen Esther let no one but me. Come with the king to the feast she prepared, and tomorrow also I am invited by her together with the king. Yes, all this is worth nothing to me, so long as I see Mordecai, the Jew, <laughs> sitting at the king's gate. <laughs> then his wife Zeresh, and by the way, her name in Persian is either Golden or the one with disheveled hair. That's what her name is. <laughs> there, there's, there's, just, there's humor we're missing because we don't you know, know the language. All right. So the one with disheveled hair, the blonde apparently, uh, and all of his friends said to him, let a gallows 50 cubits high be made and in the morning tell the king to have Mordecai hanged upon it. Then go joyfully with the king to the feast. This idea pleased Haman and he had the gallows made. On that night, the king could not sleep, and he gave orders to bring the book of memorable deeds, the chronicles, and they were read before the king. And it was found written how Mordecai had told about Bigthana and Teresh, two of the king's eunuchs, who guarded the threshold and who had sought to lay hands on King Ahasuerus. And the king said, What honor or distinction has been bestowed on Mordecai for this? The king's young men who attended him said, Nothing has been done for him. And the king said, Who is in the court? Now Haman had just entered the outer court of the king's palace to speak to the king about having Mordecai hanged on the gallows that he had repaired for him. And the king's young men told him, Haman is there, standing in the court. And the king said, Let him come in. So Haman came in, and the king said to him, What should be done to the man to whom the king delights to honor? And Haman said to himself, whom will the king delight to honor more than me? <laughs> and Haman said to the king, <laughs> For the man whom the king delights to honor, let royal robes be brought, which the king has worn, and the horse that the king has ridden, and on whose head a royal crown is set. And let the robes and the horse be handed over to the, one of the king's most noble officials. Let them dress the man whom the king delights to honor. And let them lead him on the horse through the square of the city, proclaiming before him, Thus shall it be done to the man whom the king delights to honor. Then the king said to Haman, Hurry, take the robes and the horse, as you have said, and do so to Mordecai the Jew, who sits at the king's <laughs> gate. Leave out nothing you have mentioned. <laughs> 
So Haman took the robes and the horse, and he dressed Mordecai and led him through the square of the city, proclaiming before him, Thus shall it be done to the man whom the king delights to honor. <laughs> well done, Mordecai. Then Mordecai returned to the king's gate, but Haman hurried to his house, mourning and with his head covered. And Haman told his wife Zeresh and all his friends everything that had happened to him. Then his wise men and his wife disheveled said to him, If Mordecai, before whom you have begun to fall, is of the Jewish people, you will not overcome him, but will surely fall before him. While they were yet talking with him, the king's eunuchs arrived and hurried to bring Haman to the feast that Esther had prepared. So the king and Haman went into the feast with Queen Esther. And on the second day, as they were drinking wine after the feast, the king again said to Esther, What is your wish, Queen Esther? It shall be granted to you. When, what is your request? Even to the half of my kingdom, it shall be fulfilled. Then Queen Esther answered, if I have found favor in your sight, O king, and if it please the king, let my life be granted me for my wish and my people for my request. For we have been sold, I and my people, to be destroyed, to be killed, and to be annihilated. If we had been sold merely as slaves, men and women, I would have been silent, for our affliction is not to be compared with the loss to the king. Then King Ahasuerus said to Queen Esther, Who is he, and where is he who has dared to do this? And Esther said, A foe and enemy, this wicked Haman. <laughs> <laughs> then Haman was terrified before the king and the queen. And the king arose in his wrath from the wine drinking and went into the palace garden. But Haman stayed to beg for his life from Queen Esther, for he saw that harm was determined against him by the king. And the king returned from the palace garden to the place where they were drinking wine as Haman was falling on the couch where Esther was. And the king said, Will he even assault the queen in my presence in my own house? As the word left the mouth of the king, they covered Haman's face. Then Harbona, one of the eunuchs in attendance on the king, said, Moreover, the gallows that Haman has prepared for Mordecai, whose word saved the king, is standing at Haman's house 50 cubits high. And the king said, Hang him on that. So they hanged Haman on the gallows that he had prepared for Mordecai. Then the wrath of the king abated. On that day, King Ahasuerus gave to Queen Esther the house of Haman, the enemy of the Jews. And Mordecai came before the king, for Esther had told what he was to her. And the king took off his signet ring, which he had taken from Haman, and gave it to Mordecai. And Esther set Mordecai over the house of Haman. All right, thank you guys. Give him a round of applause. Well done. Well done. So Mordecai is Esther's cousin, older cousin. He had cared for her. Those of you who maybe missed the last couple of sermons, he's the one who raised her as an orphan and how this orphan becomes a queen. Rags the riches story. But one of the, what did you notice about this narrative? Wasn't it interesting that though Mordecai is at the center of everything going on, he's talked about, everyone's trying to get him one way or the other, uh, and he doesn't say a thing. <laughs> right? He doesn't say a thing in the center of the story of Esther. And I think uh, he is very illustrative of how life seems for many of us. Like, like most of the time, things just kind of are, are working themselves out, like circumstances and situations. And ordinarily, uh, there's no voice from heaven. There's no burning bush for most of us each day to guide us. There's just ordinary events. And so we, if we don't behold, look up and pay attention, we might think, well, this is just random chance. This is just what's happening, a coincidence, right? A coincidence. I think it was C.S. Lewis. I couldn't find it to be certain, and I think Lewis, like, King, like uh, Abraham Lincoln, uh, if, if it sounds witty, people ascribe it to Lewis these days. So, but nonetheless, the principle is true. This, this, someone once said, providence is the way God works when he wants to remain anonymous. Providence is the way God works when he wants to, to remain anonymous. Everything about what we just read in the scriptures or had uh, narratively or read sort of dynamically out points to 
a tremendous number of coincidences. In fact, there are so many coincidences that kind of, I'll say, pig pile up on each other. We get the point that though in this book of Esther, the word God, the Lord himself is not mentioned. Prayer is not mentioned. There's no mention of a, a kingly representative for his people. There's no prophet, no priest. There's no mention of scripture. There's no quote of scripture. It just seems like two secular Jews who survive this devastation circumstantially or accidentally. Except, <laughs> the doctrine of providence tells us that the circumstances are never random. They aren't. In fact, uh, we read last time, a, year, a week ago, how Haman determined what date to destroy and annihilate the Jews by a casting of lots. He shook the dice to figure out what day specifically to do this. Because he thought that God was in charge, and certainly Zeresh, and his counselors eventually come to that conclusion as well when they say, you are doomed. <laughs> Haman, you are doomed. I want to kind of rewind the tape and kind of walk back th with you through the narrative because what the, the book of Esther and what the scriptures would have us do is to see that the primary actor, the main character in the storyline of your life and my life is the living God. Now, God is a creator of every human being, some of these human beings have clued into that fact and have paid attention to and give him credit for the various events and circumstances that they may think they take either for granted or think are random things that happened to them. I hope that you with me in Christ no longer believe that any of these things are random or coincidental, but that God rather for some inexplicable, mysterious plan he has for your life and mine and for our life, for our country's life, for the world's sake, is arranging, orchestrating all these things in a very particular plan wherein he uses even human beings uh, to accomplish his will. And, and by the way, the, his providence doesn't excuse us for the, circumstance, or the situations that we make, uh, the decisions I mean that we make. It is true that God is in charge and still simultaneously people being made in his image and able to make actual choices, they make willing, responsible choices that have real and eternal results and he holds us accountable for them. Now, the Jews, in some of their ancient documents, they, are, they, they just marvel. They love the story of Esther and the Jews even to this day. They read it every year. And, and sometimes there's like rattles and hissing when the name Haman is used when they read it. Uh, so you didn't know that. But sometimes they're a very uh, a raucous party uh, when they read this story because they marvel and rejoice at the fact of the bad guy getting what he deserves and the poetic justice that Mordecai is then raised in his place as the, as the, uh, uh, the prime minister of the entire empire. But Proverbs 20, 24 tells, tells us that a person's steps are directed by the Lord. How then can anyone understand their own way? In other words, the only way you will ever understand and rightly interpret your story is by giving credit to the living God. He could withdraw your breath at any moment. The electrical impulse that travels to your heart from some center that I don't understand, that keeps your heart beating, could in a, be snapped in an instant. Your brain waves could be distorted or corrupted. You could lose your sense of who you are. You could lose the ability to speak. You could, walking out of here, die at any moment, right? And so you take all these things for granted, but in God's eyes, he is undergirding every breath that you take, permitting you even to take a breath sometimes to rage at him. Why would he do that? I don't know why, but I can tell you this. God works in mysterious ways. His wonders to behold. Let's behold one of the wonders. I'm going to rewind the tape, like I said. On that, that night, the, the, the writer, this is a marvel of, of literature, really, of, of human literature, this, this thing of Esther. It's historically true, and it's meant to, to train us, to teach us, to lift up our eyes and behold, and to see or give credit to the invisible one, the main actor in all of the stage of human drama, that is God, and that he is providentially arranging all the details of our lives, and Esther, and Mordecai, and Haman, and King Ahasuerus, these four characters in this wonderful story this true story, they are a great exhibit of how we should regard our lives. Let's reverse the, the tape here. I count at least 20 coincidences. 
20 coincidence. The first one is one I just mentioned, and some don't even observe this as a coincidence, but it's interesting. What a coincidence that all the four characters, none of them have a heart attack, a stroke, or something that prevents them from going through the story. First of all, what a coincidence that these four people are sustained all the way through the drama that we read. Secondly, Esther enters this court without an appointment. Now remember when Vashti had the insubordination to not come when bid, she loses her position. And Esther even says, if I go into the court without being bid to do so, not only is that an incredible flagrant act of insubordination, I could, she could, he could say, off with her head. Not just lose her crown, she could die. But she takes the risk, and what an amazing coincidence that the very same king who deposed one queen now pardons another. And when the king spares her, was it a coincidence that Esther invited him to this party, to this feast? Of course not. She had deliberately, maybe over those three days of fasting, and I think it's implied that she and many others were praying to the Lord, crying out to the Lord, asking for guidance, for grace, for an intervention, that she deliberately uh, arranges the feast. She had the feast ready when she invites the king to it. And just as she deliberately invited him, God certainly deliberately used this feast to accomplish his purpose. And so Esther invites Ahasuerus and, of all people, Haman to the feast, right? Again, what a coincidence. But even when she comes into the, the throne room that first time and asks the king to come to the feast, we expect that she's going to pop the question immediately. Like we think she's been praying for, or whatever, for three days, fasting at least, probably praying. She comes into the king's throne room. You expect her to say, Oh, king, please save me and save my people. But she doesn't blurt out the question. She, she asks or offers an interesting thing. Would you come to a feast? Is it oriental etiquette? Is, is she nervous when she says, I'm not going to tell you today at this feast, but would you come again tomorrow for a second feast? Was it her nerves that gave out? Did she plan ahead? Was she being sly or sophisticated? I don't know, but I can tell you this, that God and his providence used by whatever means set the stage so that something would happen that night. What? The coincidence of King Ahasuerus having insomnia. His heart had to be in the right place. Well, Haman also leaves the queen's feast. Remember how elated he was at his good fortune? Why, what a swell chap I am. That's what, he, that's what he was thinking, right? Boy, was he full of himself until he saw that snot Mordecai. He just, that just spoiled his fun. And Proverbs 21, 24 says, the proud and arrogant person, he's a mocker, Mocker is his name, and he behaves with insolent fury. And so what a coincidence that Mordecai did not, or that, I mean, Haman did not pull out his sword or have one of his bodyguards do the same and slice or run Mordecai through, but he waited. And this Haman, he goes home in a rage, and he's been preparing uh, for this. He, he's telling his, his family, he's just gushing about how boasting, how, how, how great he is, and he's just telling everyone, I've been batting a thousand today, y'all. I am doing fantastic. It's me and the king. Private feast tomorrow. Private feast. He's like patting himself on the back. He almost breaks his arm doing this. And Zeresh, I love her name in Persian, the disheveled hair one. She says, uh, hey, I've got an idea. She or the counselors, why don't you erect a gallows and just get this fly in the ointment out of the way. That way tomorrow you'll about a thousand and one. And that old Mordecai will be taken out. And Haman says, that's a great idea. And what a coincidence that he happens to set up a gallows for someone to be executed tomorrow. Someone. What a coincidence. By the way, the Persians invent crucifixion. If you're thinking like the old Western gallows in the Western American sense, where it's like this great scaffolding of wood with this little thing and then a, a, a noose. We call that a gallows, right? A little, little rope thing. You might think, how did they assemble something so tall? That, it's not that. It's more like they stuck a telephone pole in the, in the ground. That's partly why they have different heights. Because when you stick it in the ground, it's a little shorter. The final uh, height of it, if you read carefully, you'll see that that's the case. And it's more like a great big human shish kebab in all that, the gory detail. But what a coincidence that that very night the king could not sleep. 
And how does he choose to solve his insomnia? He reads. I know. What could I read that would be so boring that I will surely sleep? The minutes. Let's read the minutes of the kingdom. Want to talk about boring, you know, actions and things? Like anybody read boring minutes? They are a drag. He's thinking, let's read the minutes of the kingdom because surely I'll be so bored I'll fall asleep. Well, the guy who decides to read this for him, he opens it up. And what a coincidence, reads the very description of when Mordecai saves the king. And what a coincidence that the king had not honored Mordecai, which is throwing shame on him because it was his right as an oriental king. It was his duty to honor those who had, who had protected him, who had acted in his favor, but he didn't do that. What a coincidence. Because if the king had actually honored Mordecai back when he saved his life, then he would have just read through this account without any second thought. But because he hadn't done what he should have done before, now he pays attention. How has this man been, been honored? Well, he hasn't been honored. In the providence of God, sometimes the reward that you expect immediately for doing the right thing and even the sacrificial thing gets delayed. Know this from Mordecai's story that God never wastes his rewards. His blessings are coming just as certainly as he says in his promises. You just have to wait knowing that, believing that his good, God is good and that the blessing he gives will probably be better than you think and at a better time than you can imagine. Wait upon him. Be encouraged. Don't think because you don't immediately see results that you should not hand to a brother or sister or a nephew the four emotions of Christmas book, for an instance. Don't think just because they've rejected God so far that they might not reject him or that they will continue to do so this week. What a coincidence that this story is read and that the king had forgotten to honor Mordecai as he should have. And what an amazing coincidence. Chapter 6, verse 4, the king says, remember, he's having insomnia. It's dark out. It's the middle of the night. Who possibly could be up in the middle of the night when the king is tossing and turning? He says, I wonder, is there anyone in the court? Oh, Haman. He just walked right in. What do you know? What a coincidence that Haman comes in at just that time, early, early in the morning, before the sun has risen. What a coincidence, hmm, of all the people. I wonder what's on his mind. I don't think the king gave one thought of what was on Haman's mind because he didn't give Haman any moment to share what he had, what, what burden was on this man that he would get up so early to besiege the king before he was even awake. That was out of his mind at all. What a coincidence that he asks him instead, uh, hey, what should we do for someone the king desires to honor? What a coincidence that this is the very arch enemy of Mordecai, this man Haman. The very things that Haman was scheming to get, the king now gives to Mordecai through Haman. I mean, it's like this, you couldn't make this stuff up, right? Sometimes uh, people write stories, and that's partly why people have a hard time with Esther, that skeptically think it's uh, fiction. It just seems too good to be true. I can tell you as someone who knows God, and I think some of you with me, it is never the fault that God is too good to be true. He's always better than you think. He knows exactly how to arrange the details with Mordecai for Haman's sake. So Haman is now about to be humiliated. The very things uh, that he wanted are being given to, to Mordecai. I, one guy's asked this kind of question about uh, this, this situation with Mordecai. When, when he's paraded through the city, he asks, uh, or she asks this, the king's, wonder what, what was the greatest enjoyment to Mordecai that day? Was it the king's commendation, finally? Was it the people's admiration, or was it Haman's humiliation? <laughs> I don't know. But parading Mordecai around a city as large as Susa takes all day. It must have been an exhausting day for Haman and a joyful day for Mordecai because Haman returns home fuming, ashamed, feeling absolutely wretched. He barely has enough time to vent with his wife and his friends there. Uh, and they get it, though. They say, look, dude, you are doomed. And they even mention it explicitly. If this Mordecai is a Jew, uh-oh, <laughs> this is bad news for you, dude. 
And Haman, he's a rich man. He has a lot of money, a lot of resources. But the thing of it is, I'm sure he had several Ferrari chariots. He could have got in one and got out of Dodge, out of Susa, but he didn't have time because right when he could have, the eunuchs show up and hurry him off to the feast number two. He doesn't even have a chance uh, to run for his life. Uh, what a coincidence that they show up right then. And at that second feast, now, Easter, now Esther is ready to answer the king, and she drops the punchline, O oh, king, would you please save my life and the life of my people? Who would dare rescue you? Or who dare, dare assault you? Or dare, dare threaten your life, my own queen? Well, what a coincidence, king. He's right there. He's right there. Surprise! <laughs> you know, talk about a great moment in, in, in literature, but even a human... Surprise! I'm a Jew, and he's trying to kill Jews. <laughs> and uh, ah! and the, the king gets it. He is just livid, in part because he's been hoodwinked. I mean, I'll talk next time about how complicated a system now, he, what, what he has to do to save Esther and her people. It is complex, to say the least. But, uh, and and it's, it's hard to read, too. But Haman's the villain. It's been, uh, his mask is now down, too. So the king's livid. He leaves. And Haman throws himself at the mercy of Queen Esther, remember. And of all the moments for the king to return, it would be just the moment when Haman is just beside himself, throwing himself in front of the queen, touching even her couch. Not her, for sure. Or he, for sure, would have been axed immediately. But touching the couch, begging uh, for his mercy. I and mean, what a coincidence that the very angle in which the king enters, the vantage point he has, it appears as though Haman is assaulting his wife and he's had enough. And the, and the guards that are certainly there, they grab the guy and like every other thing, even today, uh, unfortunately in some of the wicked parts of the world, they put hoods on condemned criminals before they're about to be executed. They hood this guy, they rip off the ring that signaled him as the prime minister, as, as uh, the official representative of the king. He is given the death sentence or is about to. The words are almost out of the king's mouth when one of the eunuchs, a guy named Harbona, has a great idea. Hey, you know, king... <laughs> This dude, just last night, he put a pole up right prominently in the city where he, his house would have been quite prominent, quite a mansion. Right there, he has put up a gallows, which he had intended to kill her cousin, the representative, the key leader of the Jews. How about you execute him on his own gallows? How about that king? And he says, for sure, let's do it. What a coincidence. <laughs> what a uh, coincidence. It, it reminds me, there's so many psalms. I mean, if you read Esther with the knowledge of the word, you will see throughout the psalms, Proverbs, throughout the New Testament too, like connections. And, and, and you will say to yourself, well, that's just the way God does things. That should be one of the things you should say as you read this marvelous historical account. One of those might be Psalm 7, 14 and 15. That would at least inclines me to say, well, this just sounds, has all the hallmarks, all the calling cards of Yahweh, of the one true living God, that he would do this to Mordecai to raise him up and do this to Haman uh, to bring him up. But by that means, it says this in Psalm 7, 14 and 15, behold, the wicked man conceives evil and is pregnant with mischief and gives birth to lies. He makes a pit digging it out, and falls into the hole that he has made. Even the Psalms say this throughout. Romans makes this point. Even the wicked have a purpose in God's design, in his providence, in his story. I mean, in a way, if we, you watched a movie or you read a story that had no villain, no bad guy, no tension, no, what a boring thing. I mean, what a boring story if... If there's no moment when you're on the edge of your seat where someone, it could go all south. It could go all the way bad. I got to tell you, I think what the calling, mark of, calling, card, calling card of God is this. He loves being the hero. And he loves adventures. And he loves risk. And he loves courage. And he loves faith. And he loves it when he's invisible. And still his bride is faithful and pure awaiting him. He loves that. He loves the adoration of his people. And he loves to rescue Esther and Mordecai and the people of the Jews. In fact, he's promised he will do so in the scriptures. That his people, all those who trust in him, will be fine. 
Again, providence, uh, as I said earlier, means uh, the way, it, it could be say, said that providence is the way that God works when he wants to remain anonymous. And Haman is erected, you might say, as a billboard, literally a dead billboard, to announce that there is a God in charge and y'all shouldn't pick on his people. The God of the Jews. Another psalm, Psalm 37, the 12th, 13th verse. Let me read that one to you. Again, I, you should read your Bible open and comparing one verse with another and, and start to see how is it that this happened to Esther and Mordecai and does it fit with the God uh, as he is? Well, well it does. In, in Psalm 37, 12, the wicked plot against the righteous and gnashes his teeth at him. But the Lord laughs at the wicked for he sees that his day is coming. Let me bring out three applications to wrap up. In a day when it seems like the, the villains of the world or of your life and situation, the Hamans uh, of the world, when it seems like they just spread and have an easy life and have hardly any hardships and they seem to get away with it, cancel any and anything or anyone they want, you, you might think, well, this is, this is, you get beside yourself in frustration and worry and anxiety. Don't. The Lord laughs at such people. He sees that the day of the wicked is coming. He will turn the tables at the right moment and not too early and not too late. Now that doesn't mean, of course, that there won't be some who lose their life for their king. It is a battle. But he will do it in the right time and in the right way. The first thing to notice is to trust God because he's in control. Even if he's silent, he's working out a plan. There are so many coincidences. I mean, I counted like 20 or so when I said, what a coincidence. You could maybe rewind the tape later or the video and try to take note of that. I bet you'll find more in the text, more coincidences that I haven't uh, observed. But here's the thing. If you went to Janesville and you're in Walmart and you notice some guy you've never seen before at the corner of your eye, and then you go to Aldi's and you say, see the same guy. You're like, oh, what a coincidence. But then you go to Dollar General and you see the same guy. Now, by the time you get to the pig and he's still there, you're thinking, wait a second. One, two, 20 in a row coincidences? This is not a coincidence. This guy's following me. <laughs> this guy's following. That's the point of scripture. If you will set your face against God, God is following you for cursing. If you will yield to him and, and behold him and give him right and do credit and honor, he follows you for blessing. Okay, he's following you for blessing. That gives you the, the right question. Well, then is, is God on my side? Uh, will God help me? Wrong question. <laughs> uh, invert the question. Don't be asking the question, is God on my side? I mean, every political season people are asking that. On both sides are all sides of aisles. But that's not the right question. The, rather, the better question is, am I on God's side? Not, is God on my side? Will God help me? Am I on God's side and will I help God? I do know that this quote is from C.S. Lewis. He once said this, We all serve God inevitably, but it makes a great difference whether you serve like Judas or serve like John. It does make a great difference. They were both disciples. They're both in the church, you might say. They were as close as you can be to Jesus one betrayed him, and one described himself in his gospel as the beloved disciple. Beloved. What a neat thing. Behold. Psalm 31, 14 and 15. I trust in you, O Lord. I say, you are my God. My times are in your hand. Rescue me from the hand of my enemies and from my persecutors. You pray that over yourself and over your children and your grandchildren. Anyone important to you that you, you worry or fret about, trust God's providence, seek his face, beg him to intervene. This Thanksgiving, God deserves the credit. Psalm 115, the first verse, not to us, O Lord, not to us, but to your name be all glory. I, I'm jealous that he be regarded as he should be. And I know that very few will uh, this Thanksgiving, at say the, uh, the Macy's Day, if that's what they even call it, the like float parade in Manhattan, very few will give him glory. But that doesn't matter. You can. You can. 
I will finish with behold. I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come in and eat with him and he with me. And to the one who conquers, it says in the next verse, I will grant him to sit with me on my throne as I also conquered and sat down with my father on his throne. Lord in heaven, Jesus, the son of God, showed us what it is to live a life constantly, continuously beholding the God who was in charge of all things. The strangeness of a God who asked his most beloved son to go all the way to the cross. The inscrutable way in which you executed this Jesus like Haman, the villain. You, you made Jesus the villain for my sin as I deserve to be the villain of my own story. Somehow you have not given to me or to many in the sound of my voice the judgment that we deserved. You have delayed our judgment. You have offered to us the privilege of forgiveness and of restoration and of walking with you, Father, in your house, of being known by you, of trusting in you, of beholding you and seeing now from this day forward every sunset through the lens of a God who would drape such a planet with such beauty. We will be those who, like the sons of God, that the creation is groaning for, awaiting the sons and daughters who will give him credit, who have aligned their lives to your way of being, who will honor you and live for you and be the good steward, the right hand. Oh, Lord, would you bring your mercy. And grant that this Thanksgiving might be one for the history books. Just like Esther's delivery, Mordecai's delivery by your mighty hand. God in our houses with our children and grandchildren, with our nieces and nephews and friends. There are people in our lives who are playing the part of Judas, who are playing the part of Haman. And God, we just beg you because you are able. Your power is sufficient. Your arm is not any shorter. You have a long arm. And like it says in Deuteronomy, you, O Lord, could give to them an eye to see, an ear to hear, and a heart to understand. Anyone who does not know what I'm saying, I pray that you would give that to them this year. That the church of Christ might swell in its ranks and that we might give glory to Christ and that we may be ready. And that our sanity may make sense seeing the Savior in every situation. In Christ's name.